listening to IRIS, the Iowa Reading Information Service. Welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for February 26, 2023. Support for this reading comes from the Dupaco R.W. Heifer Foundation. I'm Jackie. And I'm Nancy. And here is our first story. Animal Adventures. Dubuque Animal Control Officer Cares for Creatures in Crisis. Mackenzie Flanagan took a call from a concerned landlord earlier this month. Some tenants had moved out of their Dubuque apartment, but had left behind a small cat. The abandoned feline was hiding in a back room of the vacant residence without food or water. A lot of my job is about a lack of responsibility pet ownership, said Flanagan, Dubuque's full-time and only animal control officer. It's an often misunderstood role that blends elements of public safety and animal welfare, civic ordinance enforcement, and education. It's a different species than the villainous dog catchers seen on cartoons. Flanagan ventured out of her office in Dubuque City Hall Annex at 1300 Main Street and drove a pickup truck outfitted with six vented animal kennels and a variety of catch poles, cat carriers, and animal welfare items to the apartments with the abandoned cat. You definitely have to love animals, Flanagan said of her job. Flanagan, 29, is a native of Dubuque who graduated from senior high school and Iowa State University. She has served as Dubuque's animal control officer since October 2017. At the vacated apartment, while men cleaned the front rooms, Flanagan stepped into the back room in search of the cat. Its white and orange face peeked around the edge of a mattress, leaning against a wall. The cat gave Flanagan a quick glance with large eyes and then ducked behind the mattress. Flanagan filled a bowl with water and retrieved a can of wet cat food from her truck. She returned to the truck and filled out a notice, giving the cat's owner 24 hours to collect the cat or the animal would be surrendered to Dubuque Regional Humane Society. Back in the office, Flanagan called contact numbers in a bid to match the cat's owner. People are like, you must like animals more than people. That's why you're in animal control. But it's not like that at all, she said. You actually deal with people more than with animals. Flanagan worked in animal control in Joe Davis County, Illinois, before joining the staff of the department in her hometown. She previously worked in animal control in Boone, Iowa, when she was in college at Ames. I kind of fell into it, she said. The shelter I worked at in Boone, we doubled as animal control. I was a vet tech in school learning animal behavior and medical things. People get super defensive if I get a barking complaint. People are like, oh, you're gonna come and take my dog. No, I just want you to try to address the issue so you can live better with your neighbors. It's mind boggling to me that people would think I would come pluck their dog out of their house because it was barking. Other jurisdictions handle calls in Dubuque County outside of the city. The county also has a contract to take stray pets to the Humane Society. We do animal control for the whole 
county areas that do not have their own police department, Sheriff Joel Kennedy said. We also cover towns that have law enforcement, animal control, when their officers are off duty. Flanagan is kept busy within the city limits. With this job, you never know what each day is going to be like, she said. She spends most days enforcing Dubuque's pet licensing laws, responding to reports of pets running loose, ensuring proper quarantine for pets are observed, following biting incidents, occasionally addressing cases of animal cruelty. Dubuque Animal Control and Police conducted 157 neglect or cruelty investigations in 2022, up from 132 and 105 in the previous two years. The enforcement aspect of Flanagan's role can make her unpopular with some pet owners. I get yelled at by a lot of angry people, Flanagan said. I've been called some interesting names. I have one lady, whenever she sees me, she yells and calls me Karen. She saw me one day at a stoplight. I was looking up the street and she yelled, mind your own business, Karen. Sometimes the occupational hazards extend beyond name calling. I've had some people threaten me, Flanagan said. I had someone tell Humane Society staff he wanted to stab and kill me. It gets a little nerve-wracking in times. It doesn't happen often that I get into a situation where I have to call police. But the police do help when it's necessary. If there's ever a call where she's afraid because a person is aggressive or confrontational, we'll back her up, the police chief said. She does not carry guns. She does not wear a vest. She does not have tasers or carry pepper spray. So we will definitely back her up any time we can. People think she's trying to take their dogs away, but really she's trying to help people be responsible owners. Much of her work deals with public safety, including the effort to reduce the incidence of rabies, a viral disease that can be transmitted from animals to humans. Once symptoms appear, the disease is almost always fatal. Dubuque requires all dogs and cats older than six months to have a valid pet license and licensing requires proof of rabies vaccination. Flanagan is kept busy most days following up on licensing requirements and common problems of animal bites. Any animal that has a teeth can bite. City ordinance require that animals' bites be checked by veterinarians and remain in quarantine for 10 days following the bite. She's always happy to get animals safe, healthy, and home. We did have a couple of calls about a lady with a caiman. Flanagan's work isn't always focused on cats and dogs. There were 124 calls for wild animals in 2022. Flanagan estimated 90% of these were raccoons. Flanagan said she received many calls about a bear spotted in Dubuque. She's had her share of snakes, too. But most of all, Flanagan concludes, I have a lot of crazy stories to tell. City to require monitoring of electricity water usage. Dubuque is considering a benchmarking ordinance that could mandate building owners submit reports to the city. City of Dubuque staff are exploring the adoption of policies that could require property owners to record 
and regulate their electricity and water usage. City staff recently proposed to City Council members spending $25,000 as part of the City's fiscal year 2024 budget to hire a consultant to research and develop an energy benchmarking policy for municipal buildings and explore the creation of a community-wide benchmarking ordinance. The project is recommended for approval by City Manager Mike Van Milligan. Energy benchmarking involves building owners measuring their energy usage over time and comparing the results to similar structures to determine if energy efficiency upgrades could be made. City Sustainability Coordinator Gina Bell said a city-adopted benchmarking policy would apply only to city-owned buildings and would pave the way for the city to make energy efficiency investments in its structures. It's really looking at how we can use energy differently, Bell said. In the long run, it's about saving money as well as energy. A benchmarking ordinance could require owners of buildings in the city to record and submit reports of their electricity and water usage to the city, along with setting energy usage limits for those structures, potentially requiring property owners to invest in energy efficiency upgrades. Bell stressed that city officials still are in the early stages of exploring whether to propose the adoption of an energy benchmarking ordinance. We don't know what we want this to look like yet, Bell said. We haven't done the research yet to figure out what this would even be. Benchmarking ordinances have been adopted by other cities in the U.S., but remain rare. A report released in August by Institute for Market Transformation identified 43 cities in the country that have some form of benchmarking ordinance. In 2019, the city of Des Moines adopted a benchmarking ordinance requiring owners of buildings that spanned at least 25,000 square feet to start recording their electricity and water usage and submit those findings to the city. On December 31, 2022, the City of Des Moines reported that only 34% of properties that fall under the purview of the ordinance had submitted energy usage reports. In other communities, benchmarking ordinances have included energy usage limits for the affected buildings. Denver's benchmarking ordinance established performance requirements, maximum annual energy usage amounts that building owners must stay under or face penalties. Proponents of benchmarking ordinances argue that it will give local businesses more insight into their energy usage and lead to a reduction in the community's carbon emissions as a result. It will show businesses how their building is doing with energy usage and how they could change that to compare with other similar buildings, 
said Paul Schultz, president of Green Dubuque. In general, I'm quite supportive of it. However, Ryan Semph, vice president of government and external affairs for Dubuque Area Chamber of Commerce, said the city adopting a benchmarking ordinance could deter businesses considering moving to the community. Anything that is going to add more regulatory barriers for people doing business in Dubuque is going to make doing business more difficult, he said. When you think about making Dubuque a competitive place to locate, something like a benchmarking ordinance makes it easy for businesses to locate anywhere in a 360-degree <coughs> circle around us. Bell said the proposal is part of the city's Community Climate Action and Resiliency Plan, which established the goal of reducing the community's overall greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030, when compared with 2003 emission levels. Carbon emissions produced by electricity usage have declined dramatically in Dubuque, from generating 55% of all the city's carbon emissions in 2003 to 36% in 2018. The last year the city performed a carbon emission inventory. Industrial electricity use in particular saw the sharpest drop falling from 354,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide to 138,000. Bell said energy benchmarking could encourage the city and local businesses to invest in making their structures more energy efficient. City Council member Danny Sprank said he is interested in learning more about the proposal and believes it could lead to more energy efficient community. I think this is this would be a good thing, he said. As a city, we are all trying to be more energy efficient. The energy benchmarking proposal is one of several projects proposed by city staff to be included in the upcoming budget for fiscal year 2024, which will begin on July 1. City Council members must decide if they want to include funding for the benchmarking policy project in the upcoming budget by the end of April. Black elected officials paved the way for others to fill Dubuque leadership roles. Dean, Sancy, and Sutton hope their experiences can encourage others to become civic leaders. Prior to becoming the first black individual elected to serve the Dubuque community, Cammie Dean never expected her first campaign for a seat on the Dubuque Com Community School Board to be a success. It was a shocker on election night, she said. I didn't even go downtown to watch the numbers come in. I thought I was going to lose, and I was okay with that. But it was never about me. It was all about the kids in the community, seeing someone in leadership that looked like them, or those kids that did not look like me, but had similar experiences and challenges. There have been three black individuals elected in Dubuque 
including Dean, who served a three-year term on the school board following her successful 2002 election. Lynn Sutton served on the Dubuque City Council from 2011 to 2015, and Anderson Sancy has been on the Dubuque Community School Board since his election in 2017. We do not want these stories of Dubuque black elected officials to be forgotten, Sancy said. Maybe there may not be someone who looks like us in elected positions in the future, but that doesn't mean there never has been. If we can do it, I hope we can encourage others to use their voice as well. Sutton recalled people having mixed feelings about her historic run for council. She initially was appointed to the council in 2011 to fill a vacancy before being elected to the role that same year. Some people thought we were making a difference and moving forward, and other people thought, let's just keep things the way they are, she said. But I believe my getting elected gave people hope that things were moving forward and provided that foundation that was not there. Sutton said she always asked how a certain policy would help everyone in the community and put everyone on equal footing. She continues similar work today as chair of local advocacy group Friends of Fair Housing, which focuses on making Dubuque a safe, affordable place to live. Sometimes we just have to stay on course and push through some barriers here in the area, she said. Through diligence and staying at it, those barriers are breaking away little by little. Sometimes change may not happen in the time frame you would like it to, but it may help someone else down the line. Sansi said his passion and ability to impact student lives both drove his initial decision to run for a school board seat and helps him keep motivated today. He noted that he is also the first black elected official to be elected to serve in a seat twice, which he said he thinks shows the community values his thoughts and contributions on the board. We have seen for generations African-American leaders stepping up for their community, he said. I think representation matters, especially when it comes to policies that impact people. Dean who now works as Assistant Vice President for Student Affairs at Midwestern State University in Texas, said she was proud of her time on the Dubuque School Board and the groundwork she was able to help lay for the future, including being part of the board that passed a one-cent sales tax referendum for future facilities projects. Ultimately, my goal was not to be a black school board member, but to be a great school board member who was also black, she said. Being the first, I can attest to this, is hard, and there are obstacles you can run into, but it's a lot less challenging and more possible when someone has paved the way, because there is the vision you can have of yourself in the future, in addition to the fact that others are comfortable with the idea that others can occupy this space. UW Platteville student volunteer wants to make somebody smile every day. When Katira Malug showed up for her weekly volunteer shift at Edenbrook of Platteville last month, 
she was greeted by baby goats. Activities staff at the nursing and long-term care facility had brought in the young animals to lift residents' spirits amid the dreary winter weather. Residents could choose to simply wave or pet the goats, but the more daring could hold them in their laps. I only expected them to pet the goats, but the residents were actually able to hold them, and that really surprised me. I thought some people might think they were kind of gross, but everyone loved it, recalled Malug. One of the goats was born that morning, so a bit of the umbilical cord was still on. The goats' visit marked one of the more memorable activities the University of Wisconsin-Platteville sophomore has helped facilitate since she started volunteering at Edenbrook last fall. Each week, she spends a few hours assisting with various activities or meeting residents one-on-one -on -one in play cards or chat. Malug, 20, is majoring in psychology with a minor in biology at UWP in hopes of one day applying to graduate school to become an occupational therapist. She decided to volunteer at Edenbrook after seeing it on a list of volunteer opportunities sent out by a professor in the psychology department. She said she hopes to use her time volunteering at the facility to inform her future career. I can see the difference in abilities in all the different residents because some people have high abilities physically and cognitively and some have lower abilities, she said. When I do become an occupational therapist in the future, I'll be able to reflect back on the time and not necessarily know what they're going through, but at least understand what patients are talking about. Edenbrook Activities Director Amy Pickle said, Malug has become a blessing since she started volunteering at the facility, stopping having volunteer the facility stopping having volunteers at the beginning of the pandemic to minimize potential COVID exposure and it's been a, a slow start getting them to return. Pickle said residents have come to know and love Malug and that they look forward to seeing her stop in each week making her more than just an extra set of hands. Having Katira here is just a tremendous help, Pickle said. She's very outgoing, and you can tell she's very much a people person. Malug said she hopes to continue to volunteer at the facility as long as her class schedule allows. While she said she enjoys the various activities, such as baking and listening to music, her favorite part of her role is the impact she gets to have on residents. There's a quote right outside a staff member's door at Edenbrook that references being able to make somebody smile every day, and I think that's the biggest thing for me. There's not a day when I'm there that I'm not making someone smile, she said. From the opinion page, 
Iowa should let virtual learning count on snow days. Several months into the COVID pandemic, news media, including the Telegraph Herald, began to take a look at what things about the unprecedented disruption presented an opportunity for the future. So much was learned through necessity during those early months. Then discussion turned to considering which changes could be adopted as new protocols to make things better. Quickly rising to the surface came the suggestion that unscheduled school closures could be a thing of the past. Schools across the country had rapidly learned just how prepared or not they were for virtual learning. In Dubuque and around the Tri-States, that was followed by plans to purchase laptops and tablets that could be distributed to students to offer virtual education when necessary. In Dubuque Community Schools, purchases ensured every student could have a device if school buildings were to close. Even in the absence of closure, the devices increased students' access to technology in the classroom. That was a positive pivot to come from the pandemic. Yet, in Iowa, the ground gained has been left to dwindle. While school districts in Wisconsin and Illinois were able to hold virtual classes this week instead of canceling school altogether, the same option was not in play in Iowa. In Iowa, the state law that allowed schools to temporarily transition to a hybrid or remote learning model expired in 2021. School district leaders still can choose to have students learn virtually, but those remote hours do not count toward the annual minimum instructional hours required by state law. Thus, Iowa school districts typically just cancel school on bad weather days. That's a missed opportunity. Iowa could be prepared for virtual days, and then schools would not have to see cancellations for inclement weather or even school threats. Educators always talk about the summer slide when students' academic abilities slip. Could we have virtual learning refresher days in the summer? Our neighboring states have figured this out. In East Dubuque, Illinois, school officials filed a virtual learning plan with the Regional Office of Education and can have up to five virtual learning days per school year, such as the two the district used this past week. Parents, politicians, and educators alike understand the importance of in-person learning and the benefits for kids. We saw evidence of that during the pandemic, but we've also seen the havoc a snowy or frigid winter can wreak on a school calendar. Parents and educators also understand the challenges of a school year that runs well into June. A handful of virtual days in a year could provide an opportunity for learning to continue in the midst of an ice storm, and Iowa schools should have that option. You are listening to Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Your reader is Jackie and Nancy. If you have any comments on this or any IRIS program, please call 243-6833 or toll free at 877 877- 
four zero four four seven four seven and don't forget this and many other iris programs are available from our website at iowa radio reading dot org now we return to the telegraph herald obituaries john j o'connell jr john joseph o'connell jr also known as Papo, Loco Rojo, and Red, died February 18, 2023. John was born in Chicago on February 21, 1939, to John and Mary Boyle O'Connell. Setting a lifelong trend, young John worked hard and played even harder, including flashing his athletic prowess playing basketball, football, and kitten ball. He attended Loris College, where he persuaded Mary Tree Scheibel to date and eventually marry him. John also made lifelong friends with his fellow Dewhawks, enjoying their company for the rest of his life on golf outings, luncheons, and reminiscing about their past adventures. John spent his life as a diligent, hardworking, and honorable provider for his wife and four wonderful children. Over his storied career, he worked for General Adjustment Bureau, Gallagher Bassett, and the Archdiocese of Dubuque, always with a focus on helping those in need and doing what was best for his family. He cherished his wife and shared a tremendously blessed marriage of over 52 years. In his retirement, John enjoyed golfing with the Dirty Dozen from the American Legion walking five miles a day while counting his steps and spending time with his children, their spouses, and his numerous grandchildren. John's family wishes to thank Eagle Point Place for creating a warm community where he enjoyed his last five years. He loved playing euchre with friends and appreciated the staff setting up frequent video calls with his family and being honored for his time in the Marines. John is survived by five children, Kathleen, John, Maureen, Sheila, and Megan, along with 16 grandchildren. And he is also fondly remembered by his sister, Kathy Bob Marsh of Manassas, Virginia. Uh, the visitation for, will be at 6 to 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday, February 28, 2023 at the Egelhoff, Seigert, and Casper Westview Funeral Home, 2659 John Kennedy Road in Dubuque. It will be followed by a vigil prayer service beginning at 7.30 p.m. A mass of Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday, March 1st, at the Church of the Resurrection, 4300 Asbury Road. In lieu of flowers, the family welcomes donations to opening doors, a Dubuque nonprofit that empowers the lives of homeless women and children at Maria House, Teresa Shelter, and Francis Apartments. Philip W. Larson. Philip Warren Larson, 81, of Dubuque, passed away Wednesday, February 22nd, in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, following a skiing accident. Visitation will be from 9.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, March 4th, 
at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Dubuque, where there will be a memorial service held at 11 a.m. Arrangements are entrusted to Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory in Dubuque. Philip was born February 12, 1942, in Kenmare, North Dakota, the son of Ezra and Clara Larson. He married his childhood sweetheart, Maureen McConnell, on August 11, 1963. Philip completed his education at North Dakota State University and remained a lifelong Bison fan. He was employed as a mechanical engineer and product planner for John Deere Dubuque Works for 36 years, retiring in 2001. He was an active member of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, where he was involved in the choir and church council. He was known to volunteer for anything and everything. Philip loved to stay active and enjoyed golfing, biking, boating, and had a true passion for skiing. Camping on the boat out on the Mississippi was a favorite family activity, and he took the boat out every Friday with the grandkids during boating season. Philip also had a passion for Corvettes. He owned one vintage and one new. He enjoyed attending car shows and auto races and was lucky enough to drive on the Corvette factory racetrack in Bowling Green. Philip was a devoted husband, father, grandfather, brother, and uncle, and dearly loved spending time with his family, especially his grandkids. Philip is survived by his beloved wife, Maureen Larson of Dubuque, three children, Thomas Larson of Asbury, Timothy Larson of Dubuque, and Melissa Phelan of Dubuque. Ten grandchildren and his brother Paul Larson of Lakeville, Minnesota, and his sister Susan Banker of North Oaks, Minnesota, and several nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents. Memorial donations may be made to Holy Trinity Lutheran Church or Almost Home at St. John's Lutheran Church. Dolores Hutchison, Platteville, Wisconsin. Dolores J. Rock Hutchison, 93, of Platteville, passed away peacefully on Thursday, February 23rd, while residing at a noble care facility in Dubuque. Melby Funeral Home and Crematory will be handling her affairs. According to Dolores' wishes, there will be no funeral service and her cremated remains will be ceremonially placed at Shawnee Cemetery in New Diggings, Wisconsin at a later date. Memorials may be sent in Dolores Rock Hutchison's name to Zor Shriners, 6510 Grand Teton Plaza, Suite 204 in Madison, Wisconsin, 53719, or an organization of your choice in memory of Dolores. Dolores was born on January 8, 1930, in Darlington, Wisconsin, to Charles Adner and Florence Alderson Rock. Dolores and her twin brother Donnie and sister Betty were raised in New Diggings, Wisconsin. Schooling started early for Dolores as she started first grade at only four years old. 
She was baptized in 1943 at the Primitive Methodist Church in New Diggings, Wisconsin. She graduated from New Diggings High School in 1947. She received her three-year diploma in elementary education in 1950 at State's Teachers College in Platteville. She received her bachelor's degree in elementary ed at State Teachers College in 1953. She later received her Master of Science degree in elementary ed at the University of Wisconsin. Dolores retired with 44 years of teaching. She taught second grade at Lancaster Elementary for 11 years and 33 years at the University of Wisconsin Platteville as a professor in elementary education and was also the teacher placement director. She was a member of Delta Kappa Gamma Society Kappa Delta P and Phi Delta Kappa, among many, many other committees and organizations throughout her time. In 1994, she received the State of Wisconsin Governor's Special Award for her 44 years of teaching from Governor Tommy Thompson. Dolores was united in marriage to Harold Hutchison on May 12, 1984, in Platteville. They enjoyed traveling going to auctions, walking and dancing at various supper clubs, and truly enjoyed their life together. He preceded her in death in December of 2002. Dolores is survived by a niece, Linda Rock Ponder of Orange Beach, Alabama, nephew, Joel Thompson of Schultzburg, Wisconsin, a stepson, Rex of Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, and stepdaughter, Gail Fritz, Ashland, Kentucky many step-grandchildren, along with extended family and friends. She was preceded in death by her husband, Harold Hutchison, her parents, Abner and Florence Rock, twin brother, Donnie Rock, and wife, Carolyn, sister, Betty Thompson, and husband, Bob, and a niece, Carolyn Edge, and nephew, Gerald Thompson. She was a member of the Eastern Star Benton Chapter 268, which later merged with Schultzburg Chapter 30, a longtime member of the United Methodist Church. Lastly, a member of Whig United Methodist Church. She was also a very active member, PEO of Platteville. As with many teachers, Dolores spent the majority of her career teaching not only students, but other teachers. She was a role model for many and will be fondly remembered as being very kind, classy lady with a mischievous smile. William Cryman. William Bill Cryman, 86, of Dubuque, passed away Tuesday, February 21st at the Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center with family by his side. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, March 1st, at Egelhoff Siegert and Casper Funeral Home, with remembrances and a prayer service shortly after 6.30 p.m. The funeral mass will be at 11 a.m. Thursday, March 2nd, at Holy Ghost Catholic Church. Burial will be in Mount Calvary Cemetery in Dubuque. Bill was born to Earl and Ann Kryman on January 1st, 1937, in Dubuque. As the first Dubuque baby of 1937, he was featured in a light-hearted article in the Telegraph Herald with a follow-up interview 
upon turning one year. On November 4, 1978, he married Diane Oberfall at the Little Brown Church in Nashua, Iowa. Bill attended Holy Ghost Elementary School and graduated from Loris Academy High School in 1955, followed by a year at Loris College. Early on, he worked at Coradco. He also worked at John Deere in the marketing department, writing equipment manuals. Later, he went on to work at Weber Paper, then had a bookkeeping job with Raleigh Interstate Trucking Company for many years. After Raleigh closed, he worked at and then retired from Clower Manufacturing. Bill had a wide variety of interests and activities. He played piano and acoustic guitar, often with his father in family sing-alongs. He listened to comedy records and played over 30 basketball. He was a good ice skater, playing rec league hockey well into his 40s, and he followed the Chicago Blackhawks, Bears, and Cubs. He had a lifelong love of fishing, but reserved some time for golfing, pitching horseshoes, and playing cards. He was an amateur artist. He was always interested in the natural world around him and watched birds and pesky squirrels at bird feeders, deer in the backyard, and eagles along the Mississippi. Bill told dad jokes before anyone called them that. He could come up with the perfect tortured play on words, and he relished hearing the groans of his audience. Bill is survived by his daughters from his first marriage to Roseanne Nauscheld, Christy Bennett of Ankeny, Lisa Richard, Jill Flynn, and Danita Abitz, all of Dubuque, his children from his second marriage to Diane Oberfell, daughter Emily Kryman of Dubuque, and son Brett Kyman of Raleigh, North Carolina, nine grandchildren and five great-grandchildren. Bill was preceded in death by his wife of 44 years, Diane Kryman, his parents, and his brother, David Kryman. Carl R. Noel. Carl Andy Arnold, 93, of Dubuque, passed away on Wednesday, February 22nd at Unity Point Health, Finley Hospital, Dubuque, after a recent illness. He had been a resident at Stonehill Nursing Home since 2019. Today, in keeping with his wishes, a short visitation will be held today, Monday, 8.45 a.m. to 9.45, February 27th at Holy Ghost Catholic Church. A mass of Christian burial will immediately follow at 10 a.m. with Father Steve Garner officiating. A live stream of the funeral mass may be viewed at www.egelhorfgeistercasper.com. Burial will be in Mount Calvary Cemetery, where full military honors will be accorded. Carl was born August 27, 1929, the son of Ralph and Bernice Vandermillen Noel. In 1951, he married Kathleen Palmer Noel. They were married for almost 72 years. Carl worked for the Dubuque County Road Department, serving with both the road and survey crews with 42 years of service. He enjoyed serving the residents of Dubuque County, driving snowplows during the winter. 
He attended St. Raphael Cathedral School and Loris Academy. He served in the U.S. Army at Ladd Air Force Base in Fairbanks, Alaska during the Korean War. Carl will be remembered for his love of camping, reading, swimming, especially at O'Leary's Lake and the Mississippi, and listening to big band's music. Listening to the Indy 500 every year under the big maple tree. Of course, his big passion was tuning up lawnmowers and cars. He is survived by his wife of nearly 72 years, Kathleen Noel, his brother Wayne of Dubuque, children Janice Dirks of Long Beach, Mississippi, Jim Noel of Miamisburg, Ohio, Tom Noel of Dubuque, nine grandchildren, nine great-grandchildren, and two great-great-grandchildren. He was preceded in death by his parents, his oldest son, Bruce, and numerous brothers and sisters-in-law. In lieu of flowers, the family asks for donations to be given to Holy Ghost Catholic Church in his name. Marilyn L. Bird, Scottsdale, Arizona. The beloved little sister of our family, Marilyn Lee Bird, passed away unexpectedly in her sleep on Sunday, February 12th, at the age of 55, at her home in Scottsdale, Arizona. Visitation will be from 2 to 4 p.m. on Saturday, March 4th, at Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory in Dubuque, with a memorial service held at 4 p.m. Private burial will be at Linwood Cemetery in Dubuque. The memorial service will be live-streamed at Maryland's obituary on www.egelhoffgertcasper.com. Marilyn was born and raised in Dubuque, Iowa, the youngest child of Verna and Eugene Bird on January 17, 1968. She married Edwin Jewell Barber on September 11, 1998, in Milwaukee. Her early schooling included Holy Ghost Elementary and Wallard High School with a tight-knit group of lifelong friends. She graduated from Marquette University with a degree that took her eventually to Chicago and to a job she loved working at Robert Half for 20 years. Her next endeavor was to embrace the welcome warmth of Arizona, putting her corporate skills to use at the Chicago-based Addison Group. Throughout her career, Marilyn took a people-first approach in her empathetic leadership style and later in her commitment to professional development. Those that worked with Marilyn note her appreciation for them as an individual. While she had high expectations, she guided them while infusing energy and fun. Many recall her tribute to a music legend in a meeting or training or a celebratory team outing in Summerfest. She had a forever impact personality and professionally on all she worked with. Sadly, it was just one year ago that Marilyn laid to rest her own mother, Verna, and 16 months prior to that, her father, Jean. We are heartbroken that her life ended so suddenly and too soon and without the goodbyes that we wish we'd had. We take solace in knowing that Marilyn's life 
was purposeful, successful, and joyful. She loved her work and the fulfillment it brought her. She embraced adventurous, big and small. She, her approach was not shy. Her arms were wide open to what life offered. Her feet were ready to dance and her voice was confident and strong. She was exactly, happily, who she wanted to be. Marilyn was preceded in death by her parents, her grandparents, father-in-law Eugene Baker, sister-in-law Eva, and brother-in-law Henry. She is survived by her dear husband and adventure companion, Jewel, of 25 years, her sister Carol Pettigoot of East Dubuque, a brother Eugene Bird of Waukee, a nephew Zachary Bird of Chicago, and nieces Abby Berger of North Liberty, Iowa, Sophie, Stephanie, and Natalie. She is survived by her mother-in-law, Annie Baker, as well as a large extended family of in-laws. Every day of one's life counts, good or bad, blessed or cursed. Marilyn, ever the Johnny Cash enthusiast, would encourage you to find the precious in every breath God gives you. Go and find joy today, and then share it with someone you love. Life and love go on. Let the music play. In lieu of flowers, you can consider a donation to Mercy Home for Boys and Girls, 1140 West Jackson Boulevard, Chicago, or donate online at mercyhome.org. Sally B. Jansen Sally Bernadette Jansen, age 81, of Dubuque, completed her earthly journey suddenly on February 22nd at home with her husband. To honor Sally's life, a massive Christian burial will be held on Monday, February 27th at 10.30 a.m. at Cathedral of St. Raphael, with Father Dennis Quint officiating. Family and friends of Sally's may gather in fellowship for one hour prior to the service at the church. She was born May 12, 1941, in Pahala, Hawaii, the youngest of eight children to Ramon and Dorothea Pagador Yusen. As a young adult, she met the love of her life, Kenneth Jansen, who was in the Navy and stationed in Hawaii. The two were wed in 1960 and enjoyed 62 years of marriage. Although they spent most of their life together in Iowa, Sally found ways to honor her Hawaiian heritage, including hula dancing shows at Dubuque's Kennedy Mall. Sally retired from Wallert Catholic High School in 2004 after a 34-year career. She was a loving and generous person. Her granddaughters remembered that if they com complimented a scarf or jacket, she would offer it to them immediately. She was a fashionista who loved to shop, especially with granddaughters. She is loved and deeply missed by her family, including her husband, Kenneth Johnson Dubuque, her living siblings, Lolina Ponce, California, Pat Wallander, Hawaii, and Paul Horalan, Hawaii. Her daughter, Christy Pinkett, Charlotte, North Carolina. Her daughter-in-law, Sherry Jansen, Matthews, North Carolina. Her three adored grandchildren, along with numerous extended family and friends. And she joins in heaven her son, Brian Jansen.
Daniel R. Dunham, Frankenmuth, Michigan. Daniel Dan Ray Dunham, 82, passed away February 17th in Saginaw, Michigan. He was a native Iowan, born on September 10th, 1940, in Applington, and spent his youth in Waterloo, where he graduated from West Waterloo High in 1958. He went on to attend State College of Iowa from 1958 to 63, majoring in physical education and social studies. During college, he was married to his beautiful and loving wife, Bonnie Dunham. As a youth, Dan spent much time on his grandfather's farm, where he developed his keen interest in hunting and fishing, which ultimately led to his lifelong passion for conservationism. He also participated in wrestling and football, both in high school and the collegiate level, and was the nucleus for his coaching career. Dan's teaching career in physical education spanned 36 years, starting at Jessup High School, after which he moved to Dubuque and taught at Senior High School and Hempstead High School. He received his master's degree in education, emphasis in special education from Loris College in 1987, and was an advocate for youth with special needs and a volunteer for many Special Olympic events. During his tenure as head varsity wrestling coach, 35 years, he mentored 48 state medal winners, including seven state champions. Eight of his wrestlers went on to be NCAA All-Americans, and one became a three-time state champion and NCAA Division I champion. His coaching honors included Class 3A State Coach of the Year in 1996, Iowa High School Wrestling Hall of Fame in 1999, and he was inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2012. Dan also served as an assistant football coach for over 30 years. His devotion to sports and his compassion for being a youth role model positively impacted the lives of many of his students and athletes. Dan additionally dedicated his life to volunteering within his community. He committed his time in teaching hunter safety 35 years, was a member of Ducks Unlimited, the Isaac Walton League, and Pheasants Forever, where he served as the Dubuque chapter president from 1992 to 95. He was also inducted into the Pheasants Forever National Hall of Fame in 2010 and received the award for the top 25 pioneering volunteers for National Pheasants Forever and twice received the Iowa Governor's Volunteer Award. Dan is survived by his loving wife, Bonnie Dunham, sister Judy Robb, children David Dunham and Douglas Dunham, grandchildren Nick Jones, David Dunham, Emily Dunham, Kaylee Welsh, and Hannah Dunham, and four great-grandchildren. Dan was preceded in death by his parents, Joseph and Ann Dunham, and a brother-in-law, Gordon Robb. A memorial celebration will be planned for Dan in the coming months 
and family will be sharing information on Facebook and social media. Contributions will be accepted in his name to the Dan Dunham Youth Heritage Days Dubuque Land PF in Dubuque, Iowa. The family was assisted with these arrangements by the Ransford Collin Funeral Home of Cairo. Friends may share memories, thoughts, and prayers online at www.ransfordcolon.com. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for February 26th. I'm your reader, Jackie. And Nancy. Support for this reading comes from the Dupaco R.W. Heifer Foundation. The Telegraph Herald can be heard each weekday at 2 p.m. All programs heard on IRIS are intended solely for the blind and print handicapped. If you have any questions or comments on this or any IRIS program, please call our office toll-free at 877 404 Thanks for listening.